So as I mentioned last week, um, we started this lesson on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And again, it's one of the most profound, maybe outside of creation, um, mysteries, paradoxes, um, just miracles to know that God is with us. So we're actually going to continue uh, our study of the incarnation this week, and it's going to get a, a bit more personal, right? It's going to talk a little bit more about his humanness and the virgin, virgin birth, and it's fitting for this time of year, of course, um, as we, we are in the Advent season and we are soon to celebrate Christmas. Um, to, to have a little bit more detail of what that looks like. Um, often we think of, when I think of Christmas, at least for myself, we, we quickly run to you know, Jesus uh, in the manger, right? This sweet little baby. But as we'll look on either side of that, there's so much involved with what happens around this time period. And the number of prophecies that are fulfilled, it's just mind-boggling, right? Historic, historic event. And so we'll study that a bit today. All right, a little bit of review from last week, um, just hitting the highlights, but we covered this idea of kenosis, and let me read Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we talked about this idea of what does it mean to empty himself? That's where you get um, the doctrine of kenosis. And what we talked about, right, the distinction is that he, he was laying aside, right? Let me use the words... Um, Christ surrendered only the prerogatives of his deity, but nothing of the divine essence. That was in contrast to what theory did we talk about? You remember? Tara? <laughs> it has kenosis in it. Kenosis theory, right? That was the contrast where that is a theory that people believe that when he took on human nature, that he gave up some of his divine attributes. False. Right? What we saw is in his humbleness, he laid aside at certain times. Right? He laid aside, and where did he take his direction from? From the Father. That's when he did use his divine attributes. We see that in the miracles. We see that when he knew what people were thinking. And yet, he didn't know the hour when he was going to return. All right? And what we saw from MacArthur's commentary, which, which I really loved, is... He emptied himself not by subtraction, but by adding. By adding the human nature is how he emptied himself. Right? That's a beautiful picture of this divine nature. None of it goes away, but he adds to it the human nature. And, and in that, he laid aside for a time being some of his divine attributes. Does that make sense? All right? All right. So we're going to continue this idea of the incarnation again what I want you to try and do is, is let's not make this just a doctrinal discussion about truth. I, I want you to try and personalize it. And that doesn't mean I'm trying to create an emotion in you. I, I want us to try and put ourselves there at the time of Jesus' birth and all that that meant. Okay? Remember, if you were a Jew, most likely you understood the implications. You were waiting for a Messiah. And here it is. That's the perspective I want you to have today. 
Okay? All right, so jumping in, I'm on page 27. It says, Our Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He had to be virgin born. Why? To fulfill prophecy as a sign and not to be born with a sin nature. We talked a little bit about that last week and we're going to kind of continue to peel back those layers. Fulfill prophecy and he could not be born with a sin nature. And as we talk, the Lord God, you know, God the Father chose to use this vehicle to make this happen. And we're going to see the implications of why that had to be. Okay? So first verse there, Isaiah 7. Um, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Excellent, thank you. So Emmanuel, we all know God with us. Um, but this phrase here, eat curds and honey, at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil, blah, blah, blah. What, what does that say about Jesus? What do you pick up from, from that passage? Did he know everything when he was this little baby boy? All right, so what, what are the implications of that? He, he was fully human. But he had to learn. He had to learn, just like all of us, right? It shows a growth period. Um, in our parenting class, we, we teach that as young infant, infants, they don't have the ability to reason, right? They learn right from wrong through obedience. So it's a lot of character training until they get to a point where you can start to bring in the reasoning. We see the same sense of development here in Jesus, Right? That certainly brings a, a great element of humanness to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Right? So he had to go through that process. He, didn't, he wasn't born and had all the knowledge he needed. He didn't know all the scriptures. Right? He had to learn that. He had to learn evil and good. I, I just thought that was extremely interesting. All right, next passage. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. So let me pause right there. What does that tell you about our God? He's a God of order, right? You see some very specific time elements. And yet we know... God in his transcendency lives outside of creation. He doesn't operate in time and space, and yet he created time and space for us as part of creation. And you see that plainly. And so when God, through Jesus Christ, took on human nature, he's now in that same time and space. Okay? Continuing on. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, before they came together, is talking about you know intimate relationships, and, and we know that's the virgin birth that had to happen. Okay? All right, so what I want to do now, like I talked about, is let's, let's make this a bit personal. So the next several chapters, what we're going to try and do is take this from the perspective. There were other people in play here, right? Not just Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Mary. We're going to look at Elizabeth. We're going to look at Joseph, 
All right, and try and understand their perspective, what's happening here. Again, just this profound, miraculous event, but how does it affect these individuals? Sure. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin named from that Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. All right, pause right there. How would you feel if if you got if you're sitting there, you're at home, you're just chilling out, and you get this message? Frightened, overwhelmed, confused, confused, okay? I would just be blue screening, like blue screening. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's see how she responded. Miss Green, keep continuing. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. All right, pause there again for me, sorry. Um, this idea of found favor, obviously it wasn't by Mary's works. It wasn't because Mary was doing all the right things. God elected Mary, if you will. God chose Mary, right? That's the found favor. All right, continue. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? All right, stop there again. So, of all the things she could have said, she focuses on, I'll call it the mechanics. Right? She, she knows how this process works, and, and she's, she's being very normal. Probably the same question we would have, right? How can this be? This is not how it works. How can this be? Right? So she's very focused, I'll call it, on the mechanics versus the purpose. And, and we can totally get that in the moment, right? We'd probably be asking the same thing. All right, keep going. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Good, thank you. And that reference, you know, you often see Son of God, um, sometimes uh, reference Son of Man. Often the Son of God is pointing to his deity versus Son of Man, his human nature. And so we see here, right, the exclamation of the Son of God, a reference to his deity. Good. All right, so that's Mary. I can't even begin to try and understand what she might have been going through. You know, like Diane said, just the mix of emotions. And we see some of that coming out here, right? She was troubled. And yet the angel spoke to her and she's like, how can this happen? How can this be? Like we would all ask. Yes. And yet she had faith. Yes. And we're going to, and I think that's going to come up later, but she had faith. Absolutely. You're going to see that with all of these. They had faith. They had trust. Good. All right, so that's Mary. Now let's look at Elizabeth. And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. All right, pause there. Just like Corrine said, how is she responding? In faith, right? She's recognizing the bondslave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. Right, that is stepping out in faith. All right, keep going. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, 
and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? All right, pause there. Think about what she's saying. Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What does that say about Elizabeth? She's somehow new. Yeah. Right? She's, she's recognizing what's happening here and who's in Mary's womb. That's phenomenal. Right? Important not to gloss over those verses. That the mother of my Lord, right, pointing to her faithfulness, should come to me. All right, keep going. For behold. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. All right, pause there for a second. What you're going to hear next, and you might have it in, in your Bible, um, the topic or the um, phrase at the top might be song of praise, but this is where you get the Magnificat from. All right, so all right, continue. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he, has, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, you see the bold um, lettering there. What does that mean? The all cap. Sorry. Thank you. Right? It's a reference back to Old Testament. So she is quoting Old Testament scripture. What does that say about Mary? She knew the scriptures. Right? She was brought up in the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, right? Her parents did a good job of passing that down through generations. And here she is quoting scripture. This is from uh, Psalm 103 and Psalm 107 specifically. Right? Again, tying back this perspective of, of who Mary was, who Elizabeth was, they, they understood the scriptures. They were part of that group anticipating the Messiah. And now here she is, she has the Messiah in her womb. I can't even wrap my head around that. All right, Mary, Elizabeth. We don't cover it um, here in these verses, so I want you to look up in Matthew 1. Let's take a look at Joseph. Can't forget the guys in this situation. Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. <coughs> when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Excellent. Thanks, Imani. All right, what do, what do we see here about Joseph? He's a righteous man, okay? And he really has a lot of love for Mary. Mm -hmm. He wanted to protect her, right? He could have easily stopped the betrothal, if you will, um, and said, I'm, I'm done with you. But he didn't. He was a gentleman. Uh, he wanted to protect her. He was a righteous man. And, and even understood what was happening and, and had no relations with her, right? I mean, that could have been a path, too, to protect her. Right, so he could justify that, but he, right, you see, in all of these characters, Mary, Elizabeth, Joseph, right, this faithfulness in obeying the Lord. I feel Joseph was also a disciplined man. Oh, disciplined man, yes, yes. Because he had a yes. to sleep with, with Mary. Yes. That's the wife for yep. him to stay away for mm -hmm. nine months. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of discipline from a man. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. Wow. They probably, they probably waited a while. He just had his child. So. Yeah, yes. That's the realness of what's happening here, guys. So good, you're picking up all the, all the great points. Excellent. All right, so that was Mary. We talked about Elizabeth and Joseph. And those are, you know, again, some of the major players that's happening here. All right, let's go to the next passage, Luke 2. I'm just going to read the first part of that. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Um, I think it was Jessica might have brought up last week, you know, the, the intricate order of events that had to happen, right, to get to Bethlehem. You know, the census was now taking place. I mean, so many things had to fall in place in order for the child to be born in Bethlehem as prophecy had ordained, right? So again, we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail when we get to the order of events. But also you see here, what line is he from? David, David right? The Davidic covenant. I will establish your throne forever. It had to come from that line. I did the um, Old Testament survey during the summer, and one of the things we focused on was you know, following the lineage, and it, it's very interesting as you see, again, the order of events that happen to make sure that it happens through the line of David, through the line of Judah. Good. All right, so recognizing at this point Jesus is truly human, the next point here, Christ experienced all the things associated with true humanity. He grew and developed as a child, like we talked about earlier. He experienced fatigue, hunger, thirst, and pain. Jesus Christ truly suffered, truly bled, truly died, and was truly buried. He was not a phantom, spirit, or ghost. His agony and death included real physical torment. We talked a little bit about kind of his human essentials last week, but want to really dig in. I think sometimes it's easy to think, all right, he had a human nature, but boy, he had this divine nature too, that, that somehow... 
um, he did not have to go through the same sufferings that we feel, right? The same humanness that we feel, and it's just not true, right? He felt and understood everything that we go through, and we're going to really dig into this when we get to the end and talk about um, temptation, okay? So let's go through some of these verses, and if I could have folks just kind of jump in. Matthew 4, 2. Tara, do you have, can you read that one for me? And I know this might seem um, a little silly, but just point out what is the human aspect of each verse. So what jumps out there is hunger, hunger right? He became hungry. What's happening in Matthew 4? Temptation, four, 40 days, right? He wasn't just hungry. He wasn't just hangry. Man, he was hungry, famished. Matthew or one of the other gospels where it talks about it, but it says that he was like faint from hunger. Yeah. Angels had to come and take care of him because like 40 days is a long time. A long time. Yes. So he was, uh, we can't even understand that kind of hunger. All right. Uh, Miss Kayla, can you take the next one? Mark 14. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. What's the humanness you see there? Yeah, soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Again, extreme. I've never been that, felt that way. All right, it is extreme. Messiah, can you take Mark 15, the next one? And he was also the last cry and with his last. Yeah, what jumps out at there? The humanness of it. The last cry. Yeah, and the loud cry, right? The loud cry, and he breathed his last. Excellent, good. All right, Luke 2, And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We talked about this up front, right? This idea that Jesus, Jesus in his human nature had to grow. He had to increase in wisdom. Connor, do you have a comment? Uh, more like a question. Okay. So, Jesus being God, like, omniscient, um, I guess, how would that, since he drew wisdom, how would that ultimately be omniscient? Great question, and we talked a lot about this last week. So this idea of, again, kenosis, emptying himself, we need to really understand what did that mean. And, and as we talked about it, what it simply means is he lays aside. He chooses to lay aside some of those attributes for a time. You see um, there are other parts of Scripture in the New Testament where we see that he is omniscient. He knows. He knows what somebody's thinking right before he meets them. Um, he can calm the seas. And yet he didn't know the hour of his return. So what we see is based on the Father's instruction, he applies those divine attributes at certain times. Does that make sense? But he doesn't, he's never, what we got to be careful with is he never is um, getting rid of those divine attributes. Does that make sense? It's a bit of a mystery, a bit of a paradox, but that's what we have. Fair? Yeah. <laughs> you don't convince me. We can talk, it's tough. It's a tough one. Um, so we can talk more about that. All right, Luke 2. Miss Diane, can you read that one for me? Yes. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Same thing, increasing in wisdom and stature, right? All right, good. 
All right, Luke 8. Bob, can you do that one for me? And as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. What do you see there? His humanness. He fell asleep. You know, a lot of commentaries say that he was so tired from his ministry. Um, maybe, maybe not true, but he was certainly tired enough to fall asleep. Yes? May I add something to that? He fell asleep. Everything Jesus did was, a, was to show something. Mm. When he fell asleep, the uh, shepherds on the ship got kind of worried because the wind and the waves were almost above their heads. Mm -hmm. And when they did, when he did decide to open his eyes, I don't think he was truly in a deep sleep, but he was just testing them. And he said, when, when <laughs> he said, if you have little faith, I mean, everything has to do with solid, concrete faith and belief. Mm -hmm. So it's more to that picture than him sleeping on that ship. For sure, for sure. I mean, kind of, but like you're right, because like whether or not he was genuinely that exhausted from his ministry, we have no idea. Yep. But either way, like if you're worried about something, if you know something's coming up, it's a lot harder to sleep. If he was like sleeping so soundly, it was basically a hurricane out on that lake. Yeah. And he was still dead to the world. Yeah. And that's the key point here, right? We can speculate whether he was tired or what the situation, and it's, it's speculation, it doesn't matter, but that's the point, this complete confidence in the Father, right, and what was happening there. Good. Uh, Mr. Lewis, can you take the next one? John 4. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sakar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Good. So the sixth hour would have been around noon. And, and what's the human piece of that? Uh, he needs water and yeah. he went into the city. He's, he's wearied from his journey, right? He's tired. He gets tired. Ministry wears him out, in a sense, in his human sense, his physical sense, right? I have a question. Hold on one second. Oh, and also he was like, depending on someone else to get him something? Ah, he was dependent. Yeah. I like that. Good, good. Yes, Rex? Uh, MacArthur even puts a note on it. John uses Roman time. It would have been 6 a.m. It would not be noon. All right, we, we can talk about that. I know other commentaries show 6 a.m. is the start of the day, right? And That's the sixth time. hour would have been. John, John is using Roman time. It's written at the end of the first century, and the timing is, is Roman time. Gotcha. And I'd love for you to show me that after class. Okay. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm not as familiar with that. Yeah, good. Thanks, Rex. I appreciate that input. Um, I didn't understand uh, the difference between the two, so that's good. Uh, Miss Tara, do you can you take John 19? After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of his mouth and brought it up to his mouth. Okay, so obviously thirsty, right? And we just talked about that. 
Jesus being thirsty. Rex, can you take the next one? John 19. What verses? Uh, yeah, John 19, 33 through 37. And I'm curious what translation you're using. New King James. Okay. 33 through 37? Yes, please. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Through 39? 37. Okay. That's it, good. All right, so what do we see there, right? Piercing his side, out came the blood and the water. Again, just highlighting his humanness. All right, so we've covered a lot of different aspects, right, of the humanness of Jesus. It's real, but I really want to, to, to maybe focus on this last piece and dig a little bit deeper when we talk about um, the temptation that he felt. We covered it a little bit last week, but it's really worth making sure we understand it. So if you could open your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews 2, we'll start with. Yes. Is that a usual thing for any human? So, actually, um, one one explanation that I've seen is that it was a mark that he had been dead long enough. The blood plasma had separated from the platelets, so there was a clear liquid coming out and the red liquid coming out. Because, like, he was physically dead at that point. So, I know there's there's a physical piece of it, right? Being human, very natural to have blood and water. It's prophetic, and I, I forget the verses that reference um, uh, the blood and the water that would come out of Jesus. That was significant. Does anybody have that or remember that? I just forget it. Miss Green? I think it's along the lines of what Grace is saying. There's like this sack around the heart, and there's the, like, I have read it before. I can find it for you again. So we'll get that, but I there there is a reference to the, the water is significant, right? In the in the piercing and the shedding of blood, of course, but um, there's significance to that prophetically. I've heard that um, it's also a sign that he was really dead, and it refutes the argument that people have put forth that he really wasn't dead when he. Yeah, that's an aspect of it too, Bob. Absolutely. Good. All right, let's look at Hebrews 2, if you're there, 2.18. It's written in your binder. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Um, and let's go to Hebrews 4. Yeah, let me start. Uh, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So I want to jump to uh, MacArthur's commentary. His big uh, systematic theology book. There was a comment made last week that, yes, Jesus was tempted, but he did not have the struggle of a sin nature like like we did. And it can you can walk away from that comment thinking that somehow Jesus had extra power in his 
human nature that we don't have because he didn't have to struggle with the sin nature. And that's not the right way to think about this. Right? Jesus, we're going to see here in a second, Jesus understood and felt the full weight of temptation. More so than we have, we do. Right? So let me, let me go to the commentary here. After John baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. This is uh, Matthew 4, like we talked about, where he was tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit played a significant role in Jesus' life and ministry. The Spirit was the agent of Jesus' conception in Mary's womb. He anointed and empowered Jesus in his ministry. And he was also the active agent in Jesus' resurrection. The Spirit's involvement in leading Jesus into the situation with Satan demonstrates that this testing accorded with God's sovereign purpose in the program of redemption. Satan's temptations attacked Jesus in his humanity, since God himself, and therefore Jesus' divine nature, cannot be tempted with evil. In fact, God never acts even as the agent tempting anyone to evil. In accord with the categories listed in 1 John 2, Satan tempted Jesus with hunger as one of the desires of the flesh, with putting God to the test as an exhibition of the pride of life. Where did you see those, those temptations take place earlier um, in the Bible? Genesis. Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, right? Those were the same temptations that were given to Eve and Adam. With putting God to the test as an exhibition of the pride of life, and with the possession of the kingdoms of the world and all their glory to fulfill the desire of the eyes. All, right? all those were present in the garden. Through this specific time of testing as throughout his earthly life, Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was able to be tempted, but was unable to sin. Let that sink in. Jesus was able to be tempted, but was unable to sin. Do you remember the big $5 word we used last time? Impeccability. impeccability. Right? This idea of impeccability is not able to sin. There is um, conversely an idea, peccability, where Christ could have sinned, though he did not. Very different, right? that would totally go against his divine attributes. The ability to sin. Specifically his holiness, right? He was unable to sin. He could not sin. And yet, felt the full weight of temptation. Even though Jesus could not sin, the temptations he faced were genuine. The reality did not depend on his ability to respond. Indeed, since he never yielded to them, get this, he endured their full force. Thus, temptation for Jesus was more real and more powerful than for any other human being. A comparison of Adam's temptation and Jesus' temptation reveals great differences and makes Jesus' victory all the more remarkable. So we talk about, again, that event in the garden. Adam faced temptation in the best of settings, the Garden of Eden. Jesus faced temptation in the stark environment, the wilderness of Judea. Adam lived in the perfection of the pre-fall world. Jesus lived in a deeply corrupt and sinful fallen world. Adam gave in to the first temptation he faced. Jesus faced repeated temptations throughout his earthly life and ministry, but never yielded. 
Adam entered his time of temptation adequately fed in the delightful garden filled with fruit and fresh water. Jesus was weakened by 40 days of fasting before his temptation in the wilderness. And lastly, the consequences of Adam's fall to temptation were lethal to the entire human race. The consequences of Jesus' triumph over temptation allowed him to complete the program of redemption successfully. Miss Diane. And I don't even know if I'm going to say this the right way, but I would think that the temptation was even greater because of the fact that Jesus was sinless. So he was more sensitive mm. to those sins that were, to the temptation. Yeah. Whereas we're fallen, so it doesn't, it wouldn't hit us the same way. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And again, what I want to emphasize here is just that the magnitude of what Jesus felt through his temptation. He wasn't necessarily protected by this superpower shield, right? And didn't understand or feel the effects. He felt it more than we do. Think about your own life. How quickly do we give in to temptation? Do we strive to the point of death? Right? The extremes that Jesus felt. 40 days of of fasting without food. We can't even begin to understand that. However, what was his dependence on? It was on the Holy Spirit. Christ's dependence on the Holy Spirit can be witnessed in his conception, his baptism, and his temptation in the wilderness. John writes that Christ utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Indeed, Christ relied on the Spirit for power in his ministry, and especially in his preaching. Christ, through the Spirit, gave commandments to his chosen apostles, and he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. When Jesus healed, he did so by the power of Spirit. If I can encourage you with anything, we have this great encouragement that we have this great high priest that can sympathize with us, and yet he relied on the Holy Spirit. That's the gift that has been given to us. We must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Miss Kareem. I was just going to say that we have the same Holy Spirit empowering us. Yes, excellent. And I want to finish in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 4, right? I, I walked you through 14 and 15. Let me read that again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect, respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That should be encouragement enough. But go on to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? Let that be an encouragement. That's our hope. That's our hope. And we can approach the throne through grace and mercy and through the Holy Spirit. Good. Any comments on that? I, I just I thought that was really important to dig in deep on that one. Um, yes, we all have grace. And uh, it's up to us to uh, use it as He gives it to us. But... We also have to remember that the tongue is a deadly weapon. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit that we have should be helping us to control it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. You know, none of this resisting temptation can, can fall on our, our human power, our human strength, which is what we often tend to do. Like Jesus, we need to be asleep at the at the front of the boat, right? In in great confidence of what our Lord can do. Miss Diane. Well, I was thinking one of the reasons that we give in to temptation is unlike Jesus, we take our eyes off of God. Amen. Right? 
Yeah. Diane, that's a great point because you see continually, and this is a great segment to talk about, you know, Connor, to your point, when did he show his divine attributes? Is when the Lord instructed him. He was so in tune with the Father's instructions, which is why he needed time to be set aside, to go off and pray. We need to do the same, right? In the busyness of life, we need to set that aside and be with our Lord. Excellent. Great discussion. So here we are, established... Oh, sorry. So just back to that point that you were making about um, the impeccability, like his inability, his in, Jesus' inability to sin. I guess I'm trying to wrap my mind around mm-hmm. that a little bit, and you know, if I'm going too far, of course, just bring that. No, you're good. But, and I called you Amani earlier. I'm sorry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yep. Um, so if I guess what would be the point of temptation if mm-hmm. there wasn't a possibility? Of sin, obviously, like we know Jesus wasn't going to, you know, yeah. so it's not a matter of like, oh, he might slip up or something like that. But mm-hmm. if he's fully God and fully man, and one of the things that make us human is our ability to sin or our our sinful nature, obviously Jesus wasn't sinful because he never fell the way that we have fallen. Yeah. But would it be wrong to say that it was possible even though he didn't, you know? what I'm kind of getting at. I do, and that's what I was referencing earlier. There, There is a view, peccability, that he, he could sin, but he chose not to, and, and we would not ascribe to that. We would ascribe to the fact that he was unable to sin. But to your question, why, why did he go through temptation? Anybody want to answer? Or, or, but even with that, like, how was he actually tempted? If he was never going to sin, was he really tempted? So, so how was he tempted? Yeah, I was going to going to bring up, I think I said that last week or the week before, I can't remember, mm-hmm. um, but part of it was that he was tempted the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted, where he had no sin nature, there was nothing like compelling him to sin, uh, what he resisted was a conscious urge to sin, and that's what he was tempted with, uh, Satan wasn't like waving something like under his nose to like trick him into it, Satan was saying to him, like, offering him like arguments to get him to agree to it mm-hmm. where uh, a lot of the time with us we have to sin unconsciously as well as consciously because we have a sin nature and we're fallen and that's what, you know, why we will never be fully glorified until we're in heaven but, mm-hmm. but I, don't, I don't really see how that answers the question exactly Sorry. I know what you're saying you're <laughs> saying you, why did God have a non-sinful nature so why did he need Satan to tempt him? Because there's no way for him to be tempted. Um, so just how is someone tempted if they can't sin? I guess that's what I'm getting at. That's a good question. Uh, All right, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's go around the room. We've got a couple of hands here. Rex. There is a middle ground position okay. that usually makes neither side happy, but it fits. He had the ability but not the possibility to sin because he was God. That is a middle position. Both sides don't like it, but that is an answer that is commonly given. All right, I appreciate the the additional view. I'm not sure we would ascribe to that here at Hope Bible Church. No, 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 this is a good question. This is hard. It's one of those, like, understandings. Because I feel like this is something that 
people that we engage with, maybe even outside of our mm -hmm. body yeah. here, that they'll make this as an argument, like this is why I don't believe what you believe, or yeah. this is why yeah. I don't subscribe to the Bible because of this, or this is where it's fallen or broken, or you mm -hmm. know. And so I'm just trying to have like a like a rational understanding. Absolutely. So that I know it for myself, and then it's easy to explain to yeah. somebody else. Yeah. Elise, I love the question, yeah. right? And it's a hard one. No, no, no. It's it's good. Miss Diane, were you going to contribute to that? Maybe I was misunderstanding the question, but I thought I heard you ask, why did he need to be tempted? Was, was that what you asked? So that was part of the question, but it was also how could how can Jesus be tempted, right. truly tempted, if he can't sin anyway? Right. So when, when I think about the first part of your question, why he mm -hmm. needed to be tempted, someone had to be able to fulfill all righteousness by overcoming temptation, mm -hmm. because that way we could have our sins atoned for. See, yeah, no, no, and we're going to get to that in a second. Um, I don't think that's what you're asking, right. but, but you're yeah. spot on. Yeah, it's like that, that in... That I, I understand and I agree with, but it's just the the basic question of like how is someone or how is not someone how is Jesus undergoing temptation like how is he truly tempted if he was never going to sin? So let me let me ask it this way: Is temptation a sin? No. No. So the so the act of being tempted is not a sin. Right. Okay? So now you have Jesus. We just talked through all of his humanness. Right. So I reference the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, the desires of the eyes. After 40 days of being in the desert, he was extremely hungry. Right. Do you think that, that Jesus might not, he was tempted to maybe partake? Right? In, in his human nature... He wanted the food, maybe, or the... He wanted the food, let's yeah, say, or yeah. the temptation that Satan gave him, right? Right. Yeah. So, in his human nature, he was going to experience that temptation. So then is it wrong to say that in his human nature, he could have taken that, but he chose not to, right? I think like that's when you get into that. the different views, and what yeah. we would ascribe to is that he was unable to sin. And I get it. It's it's a hard... I'm just trying to yes. Like it's, and maybe that, that's just it. It's just one of those things that you just walk in faith with. And, and I, I personally am okay with that, but I just I know certain people don't accept that. Like right. They, they have yeah. to understand it. Yep. I'm not one of those people, but yeah. I'm just asking it because it came... Elise, again, I love, I love the questioning. And, yeah. and what I would tell you, and we said this early on, as we go through these doctrines, you, you peel it back, you peel yeah. it back, you peel it back, and you're going to get to a is. point yeah. where sometimes it's, it's by faith. Yeah. And you continue to wrestle with the Word to try and understand it, right? And I know that's not an adequate answer, but that's sometimes where we end up. Yeah. yeah. Great questioning, though. Miss Kareem. Thank you. Help me if I'm understanding right, but my understanding that because he was fully God and fully man, the fully God, fully God part, he was unable to sin because of that. Right. That is true. Yeah. Hold on, Miss Sarah. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. That's that's my understanding. That's what it makes sense to me as I've studied this. Is that even though the human part of him was susceptible. He was not because not only did he not have the nature, but 
fully God right. still. It's so the divine nature people. he was unable to sin because of the divine nature. Pastor Allen. I've been sort of chomping at the bit here for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I need to say something. Uh, first of all, just to set the record straight, in our doctrinal statement, although it's detailed, we don't take a position on this. You look at the doctrinal statement, it just doesn't say. Yeah. Um, and, and I think one reason for that is that there's a lot of good very Bible believe, strong Bible believing Christians who come down in different ways. Yeah. And um, frankly, it, it is hard to uh, find a scripture that comes down very clearly on either side. Yeah. Thank you. And so um, it, it's one of those mysteries that, that we can't completely comprehend. Uh, but I think Corrine's kind of started getting us down that, that road. You know, can God, does God sleep? Does he slumber or sleep? It's he very specific sleep. in scripture that God doesn't. Mm -hmm. But Jesus did in his humanity. Mm -hmm. Right? Does God hunger? No. But Jesus did in his humanity. So what, it really boils down to what is the, the nature of his, well, his dual nature of being divine and human at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's what we can't wrap our minds around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? Um, but we see it in Scripture. It's clear that he's both God and man. And because it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around it, most of the significant um, heresies in the early church were about the nature of Christ. Yeah, yeah. And um, God fortunately um, allowed the early church fathers and church generally to, to understand what we need to understand, that he's both God and man. The implications of that um, are hard for us to understand. But scripture does refer to Christ as um, the second Adam. Mm -hmm. In what sense was Jesus like Adam? He didn't have... He, um, he got his start in life, put it that way, his, his, his earthly life, without sin. Both of them mm -hmm. began without sin. Adam, of course, when he was tempted, blew it. First time. Yeah. Jesus never did. And Jesus is often referred to as uh, obeying, which in fact he did, obeyed his father. Um, so, There's enough mystery about what it means for Jesus to be both God and man simultaneously, where in his divinity, his divine nature, there's some things that are just non-negotiable. They're just true of him, right? Um, not capable of sin. The complete antithesis of sin. But in his humanity, even without a sin nature, he had to sleep, he had to, he hungered, he experienced all the 
the limitations of time and space, um, and the fact that we can't wrap our minds around it ought not to uh, discourage us, but rather to just point us to the the awesome miracle of the incarnation. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, great discussion. I want to keep going here, but I think, you know, Pastor Allen brings home a really good point. When we're having these types of discussion, bring it back to the framework of his two natures, yeah. right? A lot of times, I think when we're having this discussion, you got to set that foundation first because there are many who don't believe that. And you can see that that was often questioned, right? That the, that's the authority. His deity was being questioned all the time. Bring people back to that basic element of two natures in one person. Right, like Pastor Allen said, you get to a point though where it can still be a bit of a mystery, but bringing them back and having the discussion around those two natures is absolutely critical. That's the foundation for all of this. All right, so let's keep going. So we've established his his few his full humanity, but back to we were kind of getting at this earlier. What is the purpose? Why? Why do that? Why operate that way? The purpose of the incarnation was one to reveal God. We see that in Hebrews 1, don't we? The exact representation of the Father. To redeem men. That was part of the plan of redemption was His incarnation. And to rule over God's kingdom. Thus Christ in His incarnation is the prophet, our high priest, and the king of kings. So what we're going to do for the next five lessons is we're going to be parsing through those roles, if you will. right? Prophet, priest, and king. And so I just want to highlight real quick, um, we see some of these positions, if you will, or roles highlighted in Scripture. So I'm going to go through those pretty quick so we can get to the, the last part of this. Like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time going through each of these specific roles. Matthew 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Obviously, again, king of the Jews. And what is a king? Right, That's somebody who has authority. He has a kingdom and he has subjects. That's what you need in order to be a king. Going down to, I think it's the fourth one, Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Again, you see reference to king. Flipping the page, I'll skip king again. Let's go down to number the third passage, Luke 24. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. What is a prophet? Someone sent from God. Sent from God to do what? Speak God's word. The messenger, right? Speak God's word. So Jesus was a prophet. Go down a couple more to John 6. Again, you see, when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. And just below that, some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Clearly, Jesus is prophet. Let's go down to the very last, the bold statement at the bottom there. And I just referenced Hebrews 1. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I love that. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we read in Hebrews 4, he is what? Our great high priest, right? And a priest is a, a representative, um, uh, an advocate for us. And it talks about, I think it's Romans 8, where not only 
Jesus Christ, but also the Holy Spirit interceding for us. Right? So you got the double banger. But Jesus Christ as priest. And again, we're going to talk about that in a lot more detail in the next lessons to come. Um, turning over to the supplemental notes, this is really kind of focusing on this chronological order of the birth of Jesus. And, and I know you guys know the story, but I think there's some really neat truths and, and tidbits that come out of this, this process, if you will. So we'll go through that and then leave some time for uh, application at the end. So it starts, obviously, Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem, the birth of Christ. And I won't read that, um, but maybe the bullet. Notice that God sovereignly worked through Roman bureaucracy to ensure that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy. Apparently, Joseph wouldn't have gone there on his own initiative, perhaps for economic reasons. So we've talked about that a couple times, right? What attribute do you see coming out here in the Lord? We talked about uh, one of God's attributes. What jumps out at you? When you see the order of events here, he plans things. What what would you lump that under? I'm trying to lead you here. His sovereignty or his providence, right? Under his sovereignty, he has this very detailed plan. And I, I shared with you the fact that I'm even standing here today. I can look back at the order of events, everything that happened. And that includes um, my family, my work to get me here today. And that's true of all of us. Right, specifically here though, the order of events that happen, um, it, it's incredible. And like I said, as you look the, at the entire um, miracle here, the numbers of prophecy that have been fulfilled, it's just mind-boggling, right, as you look at the entire events. But, number one, we see God's sovereignty to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Then second point there, shepherds hear of his birth and go to worship him. Let me read the first part of that. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And you see the note down below. Jesus was introduced as rabbi, teacher, savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. And again, they were anticipating the Messiah. And here it is. Here is prophecy being fulfilled. And again, in Jesus' humanness. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision... His name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, like many of the male Jews at that time, he was circumcised. And you guys know circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? But this, um, this proclamation was not just made to the shepherds. On the next page, you see also to Simeon and Anna. And again, I want you, as I read this, Oh, I'm running out of time. Um, I'll read it real quick. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And here's the key. There was a man, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. I'll stop there just to say, you know, here was Simeon who understood the Scriptures. He understood what was prophesied. He was waiting. He's like, Lord, I don't want to die until that happens. And the Lord allows him to see the Messiah before he passes on. Right? That's just a a beautiful testament. Um, Same, well, I'll keep going. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Again, Mary and Joseph taking this all in. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. Mary needed salvation too to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him, all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. So they are at Jerusalem to carry out the the traditions, if you will, and now back to Nazareth. So Jesus' divine nature and role were revealed to Simeon and Anna, um, just like the shepherds. Again, like we said, they were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, and here it was. And then we see Joseph and Mary return to Nazareth. And then you have um, the inclusion of of the Magi. I'm not going to read, but let's just look at some of the notes below. There's some interesting facts, if you will. As we know, the Magi were not kings, but rather wise men. Um, It may have been after the tradition of of Daniel, right, and his buddies, um, the wise men in Babylon. Herod and the Jewish leaders knew that the king of Jews referred to the Messiah, The Jewish leaders knew that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, though Herod didn't know this without asking them, right? He had to to bring them into court to ask, to inquire. But everyone understood the implications of what was happening. I'm going to skip down a couple. They found Mary and Jesus in the house. The word here indicates that this is a human dwelling, not a stable. The Magi didn't visit Jesus the same time the shepherds did. This was long after his birth. Right, so you in in scripture you see them right next to each other, but there was a gap of time. Potentially, Joseph must have moved his family to Bethlehem from Nazareth before, while the Magi were traveling. So that's when you see when you read the different accounts. They're in Bethlehem, Nazareth. You know what's going on. This kind of helps pull the chronology together. Notice that these Gentiles fell to the ground and worshipped Jesus, the King of the Jews. I didn't read that, but you can see the bold up there. The three gifts tell us something of what the Magi were thinking in their worship of Christ. Gold was for a king, frankincense used in prayer to God, and myrrh, um, common spice, preparing dead bodies for burial. Anyone know what frankincense is? I had to look it up. It's 
Yeah, it's a, it's a gum-like material, but it has a fragrance to it. So it was used in incense aroma. A lot of aroma treatments will use frankincense, but that was the significance there, was the aroma, the prayer to God. And then turning over, um, this is a part we often overlook. But this is part of um, the chronology of events that happened around Jesus' birth. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. I'll pause there. Bethlehem, having that city in Scripture, you must have felt great honor. And yet, here overcomes this incredible tragedy, right? The focus of this slaughter was on Bethlehem and the, and the residing areas outside of it, all right? Just absolutely tragic what is happening here, the slaughter of newborn babies. And it's interesting to note that this is surrounding this, this miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ. So even though there's this great miracle, surrounding it is this this incredible slaughter right so there was there was protection for jesus right so the the word to joseph was you got to get out there was protection but still adversity they had to flee they had to flee the comfort of their own home okay just like our life today sorry sorry i was just thinking as i was as, as you were speaking through all of this um did that impact jewish people's desire to I guess crucify him was that would you say that that would have had any impact at the time or I'm not sure I'm following so that. I guess just the fact that all of these children were slaughtered kind mm. of on behalf of the birth of Jesus and Herod trying to find him um, and not finding him but instead killing all of these other children do you think that that would have been something that was remembered at the time of Jesus' death Ah, kind of a loaded question. I just, potentially. I never thought about that before. Yeah, potentially. Kareem, were you going to add something to that? I was going to say, I don't think the general, I don't think people would really know where he was born, where he lived, like his childhood and stuff like that. Like, I don't know most of the childhood or details of people that I listen to, like sermons or anything like that. I just, maybe the scholars, maybe the Pharisees and stuff knew, but I don't. I, mean, that would, I would assume that they knew Jesus' specific history. Everybody called him a Nazarene. Everybody thought yeah. he was from Nazareth. Yeah. His parents would know. Maybe his whole family would know. Maybe his disciples would have known. But it probably would have been general knowledge. Yeah. But, but Pastor Alan, were you going to add? Yeah, basically the same thing. That um, multiple people in Christ's ministry sort of ridiculed him because he was from Galilee, Nazareth, mm -hmm. and, and, and so on. And didn't really seem to make any connection with his actual birth in Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. So it seems like it was kind of a non-issue. 
But potentially, it, it's speculation, you know. But I have thought of that before. So at the time that the decree went out, would a king have given like reason for why babies were being killed? You know what I mean? Or would he just Probably. say, "Well, this is what we're doing"? Yeah. Especially since he was trying to get rid of his competition, he would not have wanted that anybody to know that there was even a possibility someone could overthrow him. Like, yeah. Would Which would have made it even worse. You know, why is all of all of a sudden this happening. So I, I just, if I'm a parent and this just happening, why? You know, I'm asking why. Yeah, that's what, like, yeah. there have been, like, talk of it or something. But yeah, there's, there's certainly nothing in Scripture that would tell us, so it, yeah. it is speculation, but I have thought of that, being yeah. a parent myself, what that would have been like, so good. All right, we are just about out of time. Um, what I would encourage you, if you haven't, we, we talked the interpretation piece, explain why it was necessary for Jesus to be born a human born by a human mother, but also by a virgin. We, we have talked about that, so hopefully you filled that out. But really the application, you know, list 10 things Jesus experienced as a man, verses that indicate these experiences, and what impact his experience should have on us today. If you have not gone through that exercise, I really encourage you to take some time and meditate on the application in your own life. We talked a lot about the temptation, and it was a good, good discussion hard to get our heads around that sometime but it's important for us to understand what he went through what he felt um, and why right so he could sympathize with us that's the high priest that we have someone who can sympathize with our temptations right and he relied on the holy spirit in his human nature he relied on the holy spirit to overcome that temptation just as we need to do all right let me close in prayer and we'll wrap this up really really good discussion today guys thank you